Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Move Fast and Break Things, C.L.R. James. There's a story about Groucho Marx visiting England and being taken to see a cricket match. He sat watching in silence for two hours, at which point he was asked what he made of the sport. Groucho said, you mean they've started? Sadly, this line is probably apocryphal, but he really did go to a cricket match and said of the experience, what a wonderful cure for insomnia. When asked whether he was in the country to enjoy a vacation, he replied, I was until I saw this game. Cyril Lionel Robert James, better known as C.L.R. James, would have disagreed strongly with Groucho's assessment. Most famous as a historian of the Haitian Revolution and Marxist theorist, James was keenly interested in popular culture, like the films of Groucho and the other Marx brothers, and also in sports, especially cricket. He had grown up playing it in his native Trinidad, and then worked as a sports journalist, reporting on cricket for the Manchester Guardian when he himself came to Britain in 1932. He rhapsodized about the sport, praising the way that it pits two individuals against one another, meaning the batter and the bowler, as representatives of their teams, and the way that individual episodes, meaning the innings, are subsumed within a larger whole. Then too, for James, the perfect flow of motion achieved by a skilled batsman exemplifies the aesthetic phenomenon of the graceful line, something already expressed in prehistoric cave art. These comments, and a whole book that James wrote about cricket and its broader significance called Beyond a Boundary, establish him as something new in our history of Africana thought, a significant contributor to the philosophy of sports. But this was only one part of his astonishingly varied and prolific writing career. In the first decades of his life, he was interested primarily in literature and the arts. In the 1920s, he directed an opera and published short stories. He openly admitted that his literary and intellectual worldview was one shaped by European culture. I did not learn literature from the mango tree, I set out to master the literature, philosophy, and ideas of Western civilization. But in the 1930s, he became increasingly critical of the European powers and their colonialist ways. Already in 1933, he wrote a short essay making a case for West Indian self-government, in which he pointed out that islands, like his native Trinidad, were producing impressive, well-educated intellectuals. Indeed, he notes that British colonial administrators were often stunned to discover that the people subject to their oversight were better educated than they were. Noting Britain's supposed plan of granting self-government once the time was right, James suggested that that time had already come. This should remind the dedicated podcast listener of the position defended by James's Trinidadian predecessor J.J. Thomas in his book Fraudacity. Later in 1969, James would provide an essay-length preface to a reprinting of that book appropriately entitled The West Indian Intellectual. For James, a connection to European culture was a defining feature of the West Indies. Unlike Africans, the peoples of the Caribbean were educated in the values of European civilization, even as they were, like Africans, in being subject to colonial oppression. For James, despite Senghor's involvement, a movement like Negritude could only have been born out of the West Indian experience of writers like Césaire, because it held up a romantically idealized version of Africa as a reaction to Western culture. The same was true of Marcus Garvey's Black nationalist movement, a crusade to go back to Africa 
led by a man who never stepped foot on the continent. But his greatest illustration of the Caribbean's unique combination of European ideals with resistance to European power was the Haitian Revolution. Back in episode 37, we already discussed James's interpretation of the Haitian Revolution. One hallmark of his approach was to trace the ideas of the revolutionaries to their counterparts in the French Revolution. This is clear in plays, he wrote, based on the life of the Haitian leader Toussaint Louverture. In 1936, James put on a production that starred none other than Paul Robeson in the lead role. In another script, he has a character remark, the white slaves in France are fighting their masters. Another offers the following mordant explanation of the phrase liberté, égalité, fraternité. Liberty is when you kill the master, equality, he's dead and can't beat you again. James saw Toussaint as a great leader because he grasped what was true in French Enlightenment philosophy and had the courage to apply it in Haiti. As James writes in his great book on the revolution, Black Jacobins, Toussaint accomplished what he did because, superbly gifted, he incarnated the determination of his people never, never to be slaves again. For James, the story of the revolution was in fact largely the story of this one man, Toussaint, as he rose to power as a freedom fighter and then fell because of a fatal error. This was his failure to bring the Haitian masses with him, allowing them to perceive him as a French-style ruler who was no longer in tune with their interests. As James put it, Toussaint allowed the masses to think that their old enemies were being favored at their expense. If this sounds like James saw Toussaint's career as something like a Shakespearean tragedy, there's a good reason for that. James loved Shakespeare, and he wrote insightful essays on Hamlet and other Shakespearean plays. His extensive writings on literature also included commentary on Whitman and on Melville. Of Moby Dick, James wrote that it showed Melville to belong to a type who come once in many centuries, and are as rare as men who found new religions, philosophers who revolutionize human thinking, and statesmen who create new political forms. These sound like the words of a believer in great man history, who think that events and literature are driven forward by extraordinary individuals. But James could not straightforwardly present the Haitian Revolution as the tale of a great leader because of another major intellectual influence, Marx, uh, Karl, not Groucho. James became a committed Marxist during his time in Britain and wove Marxist themes into his historical work on Haiti. From this point of view, the revolution was not created by a single great man, or even by Toussaint in cooperation with fellow leaders. It was the result of inevitable historical developments, one of a sequence of rebellions against capitalist exploitation that culminated in the Russian Revolution of 1917. Such uprisings are powered from below, as the proletariat rises up to claim freedom rather than being triggered by ideologies or philosophies. As James himself says in another context, reason lay not in the heads of philosophers and intellectuals, but in the actions of the masses. And as he remarked regarding Haiti itself, one does not need education or encouragement to cherish a dream of freedom. This theme also finds expression in his Black Jacobins, which speaks of the events in Haiti as a mass revolution, though he largely avoids the term proletariat, since we are talking here about slaves and not wage laborers. His Marxism also leads him to place relatively little emphasis on race and most weight on the economic forces that led to the revolution. This tension between history as the deeds of individual leaders on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Marxist idea of impersonal historical forces operating deterministically can perhaps be resolved. 
James certainly accepted the validity of Marx's approach to history. He said that the laws discovered by Hegel and Marx had been empirically verified by events. He devoted an entire work to these laws called simply Notes on Dialectics, and argued that a sudden burst of revolution, as in Haiti, is in no way inconsistent with the idea of a long, continuous process of historical evolution. At a certain stage, he said, the continuity is interrupted, the molecular changes achieve a universality and explode into a new quality, a revolutionary change. It's at precisely such moments that extraordinary individuals like Toussaint are needed to direct the power of the masses. The same was true in Russia, where another great man, Lenin, was able to avoid becoming alienated from the masses, as Toussaint had done. James draws this comparison himself in Black Jacobins, saying that the rebellious slaves in Haiti were showing themselves subject to the same historical laws as the advanced workers of revolutionary Paris, and over a century later, the Russian masses were to prove once more that this innate power will display itself in all populations when deeply stirred and given a clear perspective by a strong and trusted leadership. A key for understanding this dynamic might be supplied by the same author who gave James the template of the tragic hero, Shakespeare. One thing he likes about Shakespeare is that in his plays, as in a cricket match, the aims and struggles of this group are concentrated in the actions of a single individual. In the greatest of the plays, we see how rival social ideals fight within the mind of one person. The paradigm case is Hamlet, whose hesitations are born out of a clash between public order and private vengeance. His own personality is in revolt against social duty. More generally, Shakespeare's characters are an embodiment of the assault upon the ordered conception of the medieval world. In this light, there is no contradiction between seeing an event like the Haitian Revolution as the work of individuals and as the outcome of historical forces. This is because individuals embody those forces, indeed incarnate them, as Toussaint did for the Haitian masses. That's part of what James may have meant by his rather inscrutable remark, Shakespeare stands second to none, neither to Aristotle, to Rousseau, nor to Marx. He is surprisingly close to Lenin. Of course, James was not interested in Haiti for purely historical reasons. Late in his life, he told with pleasure of meeting a revolutionary from Ghana who had been distributing copies of Black Jacobins to foment anti-colonial revolt in the 1950s. This was exactly the point. James liked to say that history moves very fast and can quickly leave the dull behind. If he were writing now, perhaps he would invoke the slogan, move fast and break things, despite its association with rapacious capitalism. He looked forward to the breaking of capitalist colonialist tyranny through mass uprisings across the globe and especially in Africa. These bourgeois structures were, in James's view, without intellectual rationale or political legitimacy. Nothing remains for them but the logic of the machine gun and the crude empiricism of police violence. Once they were demolished, humankind could stride forward towards its final condition, namely complete democracy, in which every man is able to do what every other man does. Now, we keep saying that James was a Marxist, but if you know anything about Marxism, you'll know that it has always displayed what Shakespeare called infinite variety. The particular variety that claimed James's allegiance was Trotskyism, or rather a distinctive offshoot of Trotskyist thought in the United States that went by a name that sounds more appropriate for a 1970s experimental jazz combo, the Johnson Forest Tendency. James lived in the United States from the late 1930s until he was, predictably enough, expelled from the country in 1953 during the Red Scare. 
Like other Trotskyists, James and his colleagues in the tendency were firm critics of the Soviet Union, seeing the totalitarianism of the state under Stalin as a profound betrayal of the socialist revolution. In true socialism, the means of production would be in the hands of the masses, not a party ruling things from the top under the pretense that they were doing so on behalf of the workers. So James condemns Stalinism as counter-revolutionary barbarism and as nothing more than state capitalism, no less capitalist in its way than the United States. In order to adopt a diametrically opposed conception of socialist revolution, James came to the radical view, radical even within the context of Marxism, that there was in the end no need for a political party. While the involvement of leaders like Toussaint and Lenin may have been needed in earlier stages, in the final stage all power would be held by the workers, and as James noted, a party which consists of all the workers, armed cooks and all, is no longer a party as we knew it. He argued that in adopting this stance he was not departing from the teachings of Lenin. Central to his ideas was never the party, never, never, never. It was the proletariat and the work he believed it and it alone could do. James thus exemplified the highly educated left-wing intellectual who believes that it is not people like him, but the uneducated working class who should be running things. It's a sentiment already found in Black Jacobins, as in the passing remark, once more the masses had shown greater political understanding than their leaders. James's sojourn in the United States gave him plenty of opportunity to think about how his political principles would apply to the case of African Americans. As we've seen in previous episodes, socialists had long faced the question of how racial oppression could be understood within a political theory that was built around the concept of class oppression. James thought that American socialists had underestimated the importance of the so-called Negro problem. He argued that the situation of black people has a validity of its own, and saw the fight for racial liberation as a kind of spark that could light the fuse of a wider campaign. A movement for race rights could, he believed, intervene with terrific force upon the general social and political life of the nation because undoing the legacy of slavery would require remaking the whole structure of American society and its economy. Thus, black activists would play the role of a socialist vanguard, inspiring the masses to adopt the goals of revolution. By the same token, James welcomed the fact that black Americans did not, by and large, adhere to the emigrationist ambitions of black nationalist leaders like Garvey. Rank-and-file African Americans saw themselves as Americans and not Africans, so that even as they cherished the goal of self-determination, they also sought integration into the wider society. As a student of Hegel, James saw this as a perfect example of a dialectical contradiction. And as a student of Marx, he knew that such contradictions were an engine of progress. Given that the United States has not in fact been transformed into a socialist paradise, at least not yet, you might suppose that James would have been disappointed by the time of his death in 1989, this at the ripe age of 88, given that Du Bois and Senghor made it to 95, with Césaire almost getting there by dying at 94, and of course Anna Julia Cooper making it all the way to 105, it's beginning to seem like being an Africana philosopher is a good recipe for longevity. In fact though, James believed that events in his own time offered at least partial confirmation of his theory. He saw Martin Luther King Jr. in the States and Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana as leaders who took up the mantle of Toussaint Louverture and Lenin by leading movements that harnessed revolutionary sentiment among the masses. This, he said, was a warning to all revolutionaries 
not to underestimate the readiness of modern people everywhere to overthrow the old regime. He was an enthusiastic, though not uncritical, admirer of Nkrumah, and put him on his list of the four greatest leaders of the 20th century, along with Lenin, Gandhi, and Mao. Clearly then, James was keenly interested in the anti-colonial movement that had swept across Africa in the middle of the century. Actually, his commitment went back well before that. He already wanted to volunteer to fight against the Italian fascists in Ethiopia in the time of World War II, and earlier in his career, he edited the journal International African Opinion, together with Amy Ashwood Garvey. James saw Africa as suffering from essentially the same problems that had faced Russia before Lenin came along, and thought that the right solution was the one Russia should have adopted, true socialism, and not the mere capture of existing power structures. He echoed Lenin's call for education as the most urgent need for the oppressed people, education designed to promote both economic development and political consciousness. If only the masses could be shown where their true interests lay, they would organize themselves to act accordingly. This was a law of history that was as valid for modern-day Africa or America as it had been in revolutionary Russia and Haiti. In conclusion, let's complete the circle and come back from Marx to the Marx Brothers and other examples of the popular culture that so fascinated James. He was a man of omnivorous tastes, much more so than fellow cultural critic Alain Locke. You wouldn't catch Locke going on at length about Hollywood movies and even comic strips, as James did. And this makes perfect sense, given James's political ideas. He looked to the masses as the agent of revolution, so why wouldn't he be interested in mass entertainment? The intellectual tools he brought to understanding that entertainment were the same as those guiding his politics. My ideas of art and society, he said, like my specifically literary criticism, are based upon Aristotle and Hegel. Aristotle writes a mention because of his poetics, which James said could be well illuminated by taking examples from modern cinema. As for Hegel, we already saw how James read Shakespearean characters as embodying contradictions that are in need of resolution, a classically Hegelian idea. The same would apply to 20th century artworks aimed at a general audience. To succeed, these must successfully chart the emotional and artistic needs of a vast population, exploring the tensions and contradictions of today just as Shakespeare had done for Elizabethan England. After all, as James was fond of pointing out, Shakespearean plays, and for that matter, the Greek tragedies discussed by Aristotle, were the popular entertainment of their own day. So their inheritors, he said, were not the sort of highbrow artists that Locke liked to celebrate, but Charlie Chaplin and even D.W. Griffith, who fascinated James despite the racism and glorification of the Ku Klux Klan in his epic Birth of a Nation. Other Africana thinkers had protested against the showing of that movie, James, however, found it well worthwhile, even seeing its depiction of the Klan as an insightful portrayal of the attraction of fascism. He joked that his strategy was to watch it in the morning and picket it in the afternoon. One thing James did not claim about such works, though, is that they qualified as contributions to philosophy. He derided critics who treated Shakespeare as if he were concerned with coming up with cosmic profundities for philosophic minds, rather than engaging in a commercial enterprise. For James, the philosopher is an observer who stands outside of popular culture, discerning in it the same patterns that underlie the rest of society and history. As he put it, it is in the serious study of, above all, Charles Chaplin, Dick Tracy, Gasoline Alley, James Cagney, 
that you find the clearest ideological expression of the sentiments and deepest feelings of the American people. So for James, philosophy was a fundamental discipline, if not the most fundamental of disciplines. Whether he was writing history, cultural criticism, or political propaganda, philosophical theory was always at least implicitly at the basis of what James was doing. This is why, when he delivered a lecture at the University of the West Indies in 1965, he admonished the institution for having no philosophy department. I don't see how you can study history or literature, or anything really, without at the back of it some concept of the philosophical direction of what you are studying. We couldn't agree more. James would be glad to know that this university, UWE, does now have a philosophy department, and also that he is not the only Trinidadian we're featuring in this part of our series. Next up, we'll be looking at some more thinkers from that island. Both of them, like James, also spent time in the United States. Oliver Cox was a sociologist who worked out a groundbreaking account of the nature of race while working at various black colleges in the U.S., Eric Williams was a historian whose work on capitalism and slavery was produced while teaching at Howard University, but unlike Cox, he did not stay in the U.S. He returned to Trinidad and Tobago, where he became the first prime minister of that country upon its independence. His relationship with the subject of this episode, James, was long and varied, from helping him research the Black Jacobins in the 1930s to placing him on house arrest in the 1960s. It just wouldn't be cricket if you missed out on our look at Cox and Williams next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy. <music>